Hello everyone and welcome to Unorthodoxy and to the third episode in this short series on understanding creativity. Here I want to look at a further dimension of creativity, namely how we find and make meaning. There's a really great movie directed by Stanley Tucci called The Final Portrait, which follows the story of a painter and sculptor, Alberto Giacometti, trying to paint a portrait of the American writer James Lord in the year 1964. That was just two years before Giacometti died. The movie deals in large part with Giacometti's strange creative process and how he struggles to know when anything he is working on, whether a painting or a sculpture or a print work, is complete. James Lord, the writer and model, is forced to constantly postpone his trip home because Giacometti can't make up his mind. At last, Giacometti doesn't really conclude his painting, rather he just abandons it. It is finished not because it is finished, but because no one can work on anything indefinitely. Time eventually catches up with all of us, after all. Oscar Wilde famously said that books are never completed either, they are merely abandoned. The story of Giacometti's process echoes this suggestion. It is, however, nonsense. At least, it misses something important about the creative process, and so, while funny, it is not as insightful as Oscar Wilde thinks it is. To get a feel for why Giacometti couldn't conclude his own creative process and why he had to effectively abandon his work, we need to know how meaning-making works. Meaning-making and meaning-finding I'm taking as somewhat synonymous. Certainly, they are connected. How do we find and make meaning? By exploring this question, you'll also get a better sense, I hope, of why I suggest that insight is the foundation of creativity. Creativity is not just about being new, but about using creative expression and the tools of creative expression to reframe the familiar in a meaningful way. All creativity is an act of finding and making meaning. The meaningful can be defined using three words, purposeful, significant, and valuable. For something to be purposeful means that it has a point. It answers a question. What is this for? For something to be significant means that the point it makes is worth paying attention to. It answers the question, who is this for? For something to be valuable means that it has desirable or esteemed qualities. This answers the question, what does it matter? Think about a chair as a meaningful object. It is meaningful when you can sit on it, for example. What is this for? It's for sitting on. A chair loses its meaning when it is too broken to sit on. Then it will be recognized only by its failure to fit its actual purpose. Who is the chair for? It's for whoever wants to sit down. What does this matter? Well, here is where you might distinguish between a beautifully designed chair and one that is ugly or a comfortable chair and an uncomfortable one. People out looking for furniture for their own homes look at objects differently from those just looking for a place to sit. The meaning is different because of an expectation. Ah yes, expectation. I touched on this in the last episode, although in a different context. The deeper reason for doing this can now be revealed. This is actually fundamental to how we conceptualize and understand and interpret meaning. Meaning 
is a process in which resonance is found and or made. A perfect example of this is Chekhov's so-called gun. Chekhov's gun is a dramatic principle that insists that everything in a story, and by implication also in idea development, is necessary. The idea is that irrelevant elements should be removed. Elements should not appear to make false promises by never coming into play. The playwright and writer Anton Chekhov, from whom we get this idea, says the following. Remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. Elsewhere he echoes this idea as follows. One must never place a loaded rifle on the stage if it isn't going to go off. It's wrong to make promises you don't keep. Again elsewhere he writes, If in the first act you have hung a pistol on the wall, then in the following one it should be fired, otherwise don't put it there. In other words, meaning has a setup payoff structure. This setup payoff structure creates meaning since there is an expectation and then there is the fulfillment of that expectation. A thing feels meaningless or nonsensical when there is either only a setup but no payoff or only a payoff but no setup. Where there is only a setup, the process of coming up with ideas gets stuck in the obvious. The so what question will linger and never be answered. In fact, there will only ever be a question and no answer. The movie The Final Portrait is a great example of this. There, because Giacometti is not trying to paint a realistic portrait, he has no way, apart from his own irrational subjectivity, to set up a payoff. He has the setup, the model in front of him and the act of painting something like the model, but he has no payoff. Maybe it's a feeling, but it's obvious from the film that he is completely out of touch with his feelings, so this is a very untrustworthy way to check if he has arrived at a conclusion. There is no moment at which he can say, ah yes, I've captured the image of the model, because that's not what he is trying to do. And so the painting remains and must remain always unfinished. There can't be a moment of insight or arrival. But as I said, there is also going to be no meaning when there is, in a way, only a payoff, without any real setup. In other words, where whatever is presented is there but doesn't meet any particular expectation. One way this plays out is when the creative work is simply not noticed or too quickly passed by. I remember hearing an artist in a lecture describing how he had placed speakers in a tree in a public space that played the sounds of birds that were not indigenous. He was really surprised when no one noticed his artwork. But it was in a public space and most people in the area were clearly not experts on which sounds of birds were local or not. How could there be a payoff when there was no expectation? It is also possible to offer a payoff without any setup that is totally disturbing. The extreme opposite of indifference is trauma and violence. Nowadays, it is true that the yearning for novelty tends to invite violence and trauma, but I would be reluctant to say that this is necessarily very creative. It subverts expectations, but without any real respect for those expectations. 
the difference between the familiar and the unfamiliar is too great to be of any psychological benefit to the audience. I think a creative idea feels meaningful when there is a balance between the setup and the payoff, where there is something familiar, a shared point of connection or a shared symbolic universe, but also a payoff. The payoff should be a clever answer to the setup in which the setup is affirmed and then responded to in an interesting way. As an aside, the fact that I'm talking about meaning and creativity is analogous to the search for meaning in life. You and I are set up in a particular way with a general nature and unique personalities and capacities. Meaning in life has to do with answering that setup and then finding a relevant payoff. This is a much bigger issue than what I'm talking about around creativity, but I may as well gesture in a direction. We are fulfilled in virtue and degraded by vices. We are fulfilled in service to others and degraded by selfishness and narcissism. We find meaning in living out our highest potentials for the highest good, and we lose meaning when prevented by ourselves, others, and the world from seeking the highest good. Gratitude and humility are essential to life's meaning because they set up a particular posture that is open to the goodness of the given. It makes sense that creativity is an important component of meaning-finding and meaning-making since it reflects the structure of human life in its pursuit of meaning. I hope you enjoyed that brief detour. So now back to creativity. I mentioned Giacometti because one of the things suggested in that movie about him is that he was waiting for inspiration. This is one of the myths about creativity that I would like to challenge. Yes, of course, inspiration does happen when we allow it to, when we are open to it. But the idea of the merely receptive creative vehicle is the residue of a romantic ideology that was anything but self-aware. Openness, as I've said, is important, but it is not the whole story. The point of having an open mind is like that of having an open mouth. It is to be able to shut it on something solid. Very importantly then, creativity involves making decisions. More specifically, creativity is about making interesting decisions. It's about figuring out what the setup is, then figuring out how to answer the setup in an interesting way. It's about figuring out who your creative work is for and about deciding how to present it. Many decisions are involved and they will differ depending on the creative work in question, but making no decisions like the Giacometti in that movie is an example of not being creative. This is what's great about working with insight as the foundation of creativity. It gives you a measure, it gives you a way to determine whether what you want to communicate is actually hitting the mark. This is what themes do in stories, for example. They guide creative thought into a furrow, and along that furrow many related thoughts and ideas can flow. They become a way for the writer or filmmaker to decide what ideas to keep and which ones to chuck out. Making interesting and good creative decisions also helps any audience to evaluate the quality of a concept or idea being presented. Strong decisions allow an audience to evaluate whether the idea is insightful or not, or whether it offers something sufficiently fresh. In other words, we might ask, 
Is this something that most people in a given audience would not think of as obvious? Of course, what's insightful for one audience may not be for another audience. A book of high-octane philosophy may be too alien to one audience to prove insightful, and a book of popular philosophy may be too familiar to the high-octane philosopher to prove insightful. The setup and payoff are, as you can see, highly dependent on the audience you are speaking to. You can tell if a concept is good simply if there is an alignment between the setup and the payoff, and perhaps between the combination of setup, payoff, insight, and execution. Perhaps there are creative people and thinkers and coaches who would disagree with me here, but I personally don't have time for artists and creatives like Giacometti who try to capture something elusive and then present their work to an audience in the hope that they too will somehow miraculously tap into that certain elusive something. I don't care much for artists and creatives who hide speakers in trees without giving the audience a second thought while still feeling entitled enough to demand that people should pay attention to their supposedly brilliant work. Or rather, I find such artists funny rather than inspiring, and I'm not sure that that's what they really are going for. I also don't care for art that aims to shock and horrify rather than communicate. All of this reeks of hubris and an obliviousness to the actual creative act, and the act of being confronted with creative work. All of this reeks of not making enough interesting, values-driven decisions that attend to really engaging an audience in a meaningful way. Some creative work is clearly better than other creative work, and this hinges on an attunement to how meaning is made. And it is there that I would like to conclude this third part. In the fourth and last podcast on understanding creativity, I want to talk a bit about the analogical structure of cognition and what that means for coming up with creativity.